Judaism that's less pure, more full of contradictions? Yeah, you know, what we need is an environmentalism that's openly not afraid of being occasionally hypocritical, a limited environmentalism, a sloppier environmentalism, hopefully a funnier environmentalism. I mean, we all know the different nature languages. There's the nature saint, oh, a squirrel, an acorn, how beautiful, how wonderful. (laughs) And there's the technocrat kind of a semi-palmated plover, which migrates through in late October, you know. And then worst of all for me is the end of the world school of, of just doom, where, no, you know, I say it's like living with a, a spouse who's always saying, this marriage is over, this marriage is doomed. And it's not that I disagree with the premise, because I realize population is rising, species are dying. I mean, the world is becoming more crowded and, and smeared with our industrial stains. It's true. But what I object to is kind of the result of focusing so much on the doom, which is the intellectual equivalent of a panic attack. You feel overwhelmed and you don't do anything. We become paralyzed and the way out is by simple single actions. Hmm. And that's why I put Dan Driscoll, who greened the Charles River, as kind of a hero because he didn't save the world. He saved a small part of it. So tell us about Dan Driscoll, this guy whose conversation you just quoted in that section you read. He emerges in your book as a kind of modern-day eco-hero. Who is he, and what is it you admire so much about him? Well, I met him in an unlikely way. I played ultimate Frisbee for years, and uh, and there was this kind of crazy guy who we called Danimal. And he was known for racing after Frisbees, I said, like a, a border collie, and diving after them. And he was very full of gusto. And one night, drinking beers with him after we played, I realized that he had spent the last 20 years fighting to green the Charles River. It seemed a very unlikely guy to have done it when I first met him. This is the river that runs through the heart of Boston. Exactly. It runs from about where the marathon starts in Hopkinton right into Boston. It wends around. uh, And Dan had taken a job as an eco-advisor for the state, working for the state in Massachusetts. And... He had been the new guy, and they'd given him basically an impossible task. They'd said, you go reclaim this land along the Charles, and you clean up the middle Charles. And, of course, the Charles River is so famously dirty, the Standells had a song, Dirty Water, about it, that they sing at Red Sox games. And Dan didn't know that he was given an impossible task, and he he started in on it. What he was trying to do was reclaim land that had once been the state's. People thought they owned this land, that Dan was coming to tell them, no, in fact, the city owns it, and we're going to take it back. Just imagine the fury. You know, not in my backyard. It was He literally was trying to take their backyards from them. He had a legal team that he didn't use, not a single lawsuit. It was through town meetings, through cajoling, through schmoozing, that he managed to talk towns into putting bike paths along the Charles And bike paths were kind of his Trojan horse for putting in native plantings and replanting the banks. But it's it's really interesting that you you write about this kind of eco hero in your book when you also say that you're not sure you really want to be this thing called an environmentalist. Yeah, I know what I do want to be. You know, if you look at Thoreau, who everybody drags out for everything, and I do too. I'm as guilty as anybody. I went back to Walden with my wife and daughter a couple years ago. My daughter was about six. And we walked along the pond, Walden Pond, and my wife pointed and where the foundation where the cabin had been, and she said to my daughter, that's where the house was of the man who ruined daddy's life. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, 
And it's true. <laughs> and when I was 16, I, I, I read that book. You know, it, something changed. I was like, it wasn't that it was a literary thing. It confirmed an instinct in me, almost an animal instinct, that I loved those places. And I loved mucking around in them. And I loved being out in them. And it was a very kind of primal thing. And what frustrates me about environmentalism is we talk about laws and rules, and we neglect that initial Thoreauian impulse of kind of wildness. It sounds like you think we've tamed Thoreau, kind of turned him into a PBS nature special and environmentalism along with it. And what we need is something more akin to, I don't know, the, the energy or the anarchy of hip hop or the punk movement. Yeah, that's, well, anybody who's spent time more than a day or two out in the outdoors knows that around a campfire, uh, usually with some sort of bottle that you're drinking from, you have some of the most raucous, fun, and funny times in your life.